Section 7 of Celebrated Crimes, Volume 5, by Alexandre Dumont. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Russell Newton. Celebrated Crimes, Volume 5, by Alexandre Dumont. Section 7. The next day, February 1st, the day he had fixed for the going out of Madame Lamotte, he caused the chest to be placed on a hand-card and carried at about ten o'clock in the morning to the workshop of a carpenter of his acquaintance called Mouchy, who dwelt near the Louvre. The two commissionaires employed had been selected in distant quarters, and did not know each other. They were well paid, and each presented with a bottle of wine. These men could never be traced. Derue requested the carpenter's wife to allow the chest to remain in the large workshop, saying he had forgotten something at his own house and would return to fetch it in three hours. But, instead of a few hours, he left it for two whole days. Why, one does not know. But it may be supposed that he wanted the time to dig a trench in a sort of vault under the staircase, leading to the cellar in the Rue de la Martellerie. Whatever the cause, the delay might have been fatal, and did occasion an unforeseen encounter which nearly betrayed him. But of all the actors in this scene, he alone knew the real danger he incurred, and his coolness never deserted him for a moment. The third day, as he walked alongside the handcart on which the chest was being conveyed, he was accosted at Saint-Germain-Lazareux by a creditor who had obtained a writ of execution against him, and at the imperative sign made by this man the porter stopped. The creditor attacked Derue violently, reproaching him for his bad faith in language which was both energetic and uncomplimentary to which the latter replied in as conciliatory a manner as he could assume. But it was impossible to silence the enemy, and an increasing crowd of idlers began to assemble round them. "'When will you pay me?' demanded the creditor. "'I have an execution against you. What is there in that box? Valuables which you cart away secretly, in order to laugh at my just claims as you did two years ago?' Derue shuddered all over. He exhausted himself in protestations. But the other, almost beside himself, continued to shout. Oh, he said, turning to the crowd, all these tricks and grimaces and signs of the cross are no good. I must have my money, and as I know what his promises are worth, I will pay myself. Come, you knave, make haste. Tell me what there is in that box. Open it, or I will fetch the police. The crowd was divided between the creditor and the debtor, and possibly a free fight would have begun but the general attention was distracted by the arrival of another spectator. A voice, heard above all the tumult, caused a score of heads to turn. It was the voice of a woman crying, "'The abominable history of Leroy de Villene, condemned to death at the age of sixteen for having poisoned his entire family!' Continually crying her wares, the drunken, staggering woman approached the crowd, and striking out right and left with fist and elbows, forced her way to Derue. "'Ah!' Ah, said she, after looking him well over it, is it you, my gossip Derue? Have you again a little affair on hand like the one when you sent fire to your shop in the Rue Saint-Victor? Derue recognized the hawker, who had abused him on the threshold of his shop some years previously, and whom he had never seen since. Yes, yes, she continued, you had better look at me with your little round cat's eyes. Are you going to say you don't know me? Derue appealed to his creditor. You see, he said, to what insults you are exposing me. I do not know this woman who abuses me. What? You don't know me? You who accuse me of being a thief? 
but luckily the manifests have been known in Paris as honest people for generation, while as for you, sir, said Derue, this case contains valuable wine which I am commissioned to sell. Tomorrow I shall receive money for it. Tomorrow, in the course of the day, I will pay what I owe you. But I am waited for now. Do not, in heaven's name, detain me any longer, and thus deprive me of my means of paying at all. Don't believe him, my good man, said the hawker. Lying comes natural to him always. Sir, I promise, on my oath, you shall be paid tomorrow. You had better trust the word of an honest man rather than the ravings of a drunken woman. The creditor still hesitated. But another person now spoke in Derue's favor. It was the carpenter Mushi who had inquired the cause of the quarrel. "'For God's sake!' he exclaimed. "'Let the gentleman go out. That chest came from my workshop, and I know there is wine inside it. He told my wife so two days ago. "'Will you be surety for me, my friend?' asked Derue. "'Certainly I will. I have not known you for ten years, in order to leave you in trouble and refuse to answer for you. What the devil are respectable people to be stop like this in a public place? Come, sir, believe his word, as I do.' After some more discussion, the porter was at last allowed to proceed with his hand-cart. The hawker wanted to interfere, but Mushi warned her off and ordered her to be silent. "'Ah! Ah!' she cried. "'What does it matter to me? Let him sell his wine if he can. I shall not drink any on his premises. This is the second time he has found a surety to my knowledge. The beggar must have some special secret for encouraging the growth of fools. Good-bye, gossip Derue. You know I shall be selling your history some day. Meanwhile, the abominable history of Leroy de Villene, condemned to death at the age of sixteen for having poisoned his entire family. While she amused the people by her grimaces and grotesque gestures, and while Mushi held forth to some of them, Derues made his escape. Several times between the Saint-Germain-Lazareau and the Rue de Mortellerie he nearly fainted and was obliged to stop. While the danger lasted, he had had sufficient self-control to confront it coolly but now that he calculated the depth of the abyss which for a moment had opened beneath his feet, dizziness laid hold on him. Other precautions now became necessary. His real name had been mentioned before the commissionaire, and the widow Maison, who owned the cellar, only knew him as Ducaudre. He went on in front, asked for the keys which till then had been left with her, and the chest was got downstairs without any awkward questions. Only the porter seemed astonished that the supposed wine, which was to be sold immediately, should be put in such a place and asked if he might come the next day and move it again. Derues replied that someone was coming for it that very day. This question, and the disgraceful scene which the man had witnessed, made it necessary to get rid of him without letting him see the pit dug under the staircase. Derues tried to drag the chest towards the hole, but all his strength was insufficient to move it. He uttered terrible imprecations when he recognized his own weakness and saw that he would be obliged to bring another stranger, an informer perhaps, into this charnel-house where, as yet nothing betrayed his crimes. No sooner escaped from one peril than he encountered another, and already he had to struggle against his own deeds. He measured the length of the trench. It was too short. Derues went out and repaired to the place where he had hired the laborer who had dug it out, but he could not find the man, whom he had only seen once, and whose name he did not know. Two whole days were spent in this fruitless search, but on the third, as he was wandering on one of the quays at the time laborers to be, were to be found there, a mason, thinking he was looking for someone, inquired what he wanted. Derues looked well at the man, and, concluding from his appearance that he was probably rather simple-minded, asked, "'Would you like to earn a crown of three livres by an easy job?' 
"'What a question, master,' answered the mason. "'Work is so scarce that I am going back into the country this very evening.' "'Very well. Bring your tools, spade and pickaxe, and follow me.' They both went down to the cellar, and the mason was ordered to dig out the pit till it was five and a half feet deep. While the man worked, Derues sat beside the chest and read. When it was half done, the mason stopped for breath, and leaning on his spade inquired why he wanted a trench of such a depth. Derues, who had probably foreseen the question, answered at once without being disconcerted. "'I want to bury some bottled wine which is contained in this case.' "'Wine?' said the other. "'Ah, you are laughing at me because you think I look a fool. I had never yet heard of such a recipe for improving wine. Where do you come from?' "'D'Alençon. Cider drinker. You were brought up in Normandy, this is clear. Well, you can learn from me. Jean-Baptiste du Caudray, a wine-grower of Tours, and a wine merchant for the last ten years that new wine thus buried for a year acquires the quality and characteristics of the oldest brands it is possible said the mason again taking his spade but all the same it seems a little odd to me when he had finished derues asked him to help drag the chest alongside the trench so that it might be easier to take out the bottles and arrange them the mason agreed but when he moved the chest the fetid odour which proceeded from it made him draw back declaring that a smell such as that could not possibly proceed from wine. Derues tried to persuade him that the smell came from drains under the cellar, the pipe of which could be seen. It appeared to satisfy him, and he again took hold of the chest, but immediately let it go again, and said positively that he could not execute Derues' orders, being convinced that the chest must contain a decomposing corpse. Then Derues threw himself at the man's feet, and acknowledged that it was the dead body of a woman who had unfortunately lodged in this house, and who had died there suddenly from an unknown malady, and that, dreading lest he should be accused of having murdered her, he had decided to conceal the death and bury her here. The mason listened, alarmed at this confidence, and not knowing whether to believe it or not. Derues sobbed and wept at his feet, beat his breast and tore out his hair, calling on God and the saints as witnesses of his good faith and his innocence. He showed the book he was reading while the man excavated. It was the seven penitential psalms. "'How unfortunate I am!' he cried. "'This woman died in my house, I assured you. Died suddenly, before I could call a doctor. I was alone. I might have been accused, imprisoned, perhaps condemned for a crime I did not commit. Do not ruin me. You leave Paris tonight. You need not be uneasy. No one would know that I employed you if this unhappy affair should ever be discovered. I do not know your name. I do not wish to know it and I tell you mine, it is Ducaudray. I give myself up to you, but have some pity, if not for me, yet for my wife and my two little children, for these poor creatures whose only support I am. Seeing that the mason was touched, Derues opened the chest. Look, he said, examine the body of this woman. Does it show any mark of violent death? My God, he continued, joining his hands, and in tones of despairing agony, my God, Thou who readest all hearts, and who knowest my innocence, canst thou not ordain a miracle to save an honest man? Wilt thou not command this dead body to bear witness for me? The mason was stupefied by this flow of language. Unable to restrain his tears, he promised to keep silence, persuaded that Derue was innocent, and that appearances only were against him. The latter, moreover, did not neglect other means of persuasion. He handed the mason two gold pieces, and between them they buried the body of madame de lamotte however extraordinary this fact which might easily be supposed imaginary may appear it certainly happened in the examination at his trial 
Derues himself revealed it, repeating the story which had satisfied the mason. He believed that this man had denounced him. He was mistaken, for this confidant of his crime, who might have been the first to put justice on his track, never reappeared, and but for Derues' acknowledgment, his existence would have remained unknown. The first deed accomplished, another victim was already appointed. Trembling at first as to the consequences of his forced confession, Derues waited some days, paying, however, his creditor as promised. He redoubles his demonstrations of piety. He casts a furtive glance on everyone he meets, seeking for some expression of distrust. But no one avoids him or points him out with a raised finger or whispers on seeing him. Everywhere he encounters the customary expression of goodwill. Nothing has changed. Suspicion passes over his head without alighting there. He is reassured and resumes his work. Moreover, had he wished to remain passive, he could not have done so. He was now compelled to follow that fatal law of crime which demands that blood must be effaced with blood, and which is compelled to appeal again to death in order to stifle the accusing voice already issuing from the tomb. Edouard de Lamotte, loving his mother as much as she loved him, became uneasy at receiving no visits, and was astonished at this sudden indifference. Derue wrote to him as follows. I have at length some good news for you, my dear boy, but you must not tell your mother I have betrayed her secret. She would scold me, because she is planning a surprise for you, and the various steps and care necessary in arranging this important matter have caused her absence. You are to know nothing until the eleventh or twelfth of this month, but now that all is settled I should blame myself if I prolong the uncertainty in which you have been left. Only you must promise me to look as much astonished as possible. Your mother, who only lives for you, is going to present you with the greatest gift a youth of your age can receive, that of liberty. Yes, dear boy, we thought we had discovered that you have no very keen taste for study, and that a secluded life will suit neither your character nor your health. In saying this I utter no reproach, for every man is born with his own decided tastes, and the way to success and happiness is often to allow him to follow these instincts. We have had long discussions on this subject, your mother and I, and we have thought much about your future. She has at last come to a decision, and for the last ten days has been at Versailles, endeavoring to obtain your admission as a royal page. Here is the mystery. This is the reason which has kept her from you, and as she knew you would hear it with delight, she wished to have the pleasure of telling you herself. Therefore, once again, when you see her, which will be very soon, do not let her see I have told you. Appear to be greatly surprised. It is true that I am asking you to tell a lie, but it is a very innocent one and its good intention will counteract its sinfulness. May God grant we never have worse upon our consciences. Thus, instead of lessons and the solemn precepts of your tutors, instead of a monotonous school life, you are going to enjoy your liberty, also the pleasures of the court and the world. All that rather alarms me, and I ought to confess that I at first opposed this plan. I begged your mother to reflect, to consider that in this new existence you would run great risk of losing the religious feeling which inspires you, and which I have had the happiness, during my sojourn at Bizonceau, of further developing in your mind. I still recall with emotion your fervid and sincere aspirations towards the Creator when you approached the sacred table for the first time, and when, kneeling beside you and envying the purity of heart and innocence of soul which appeared to animate your countenance as with a divine radiance, I besought God that, in default of my own virtue, 
the love for heavenly truth which which I, I have inspired you might be reckoned to my account. Your piety is my work, Edward, and I defended it against your mother's plans. But she replied that in every career a man is master of his own good or evil actions, and as I have no authority over you, and friendship only gives me the right to advise, I must give way. If this be your vocation, then follow it. My occupations are so numerous. I have to collect from different sources this hundred thousand livres intended to defray the greater part of the Bisson purchase, that I have not a moment in which to come and see you this week. Spend the time in reflection, and write to me fully what you think about this plan. If, like me, you feel any scruples, you must tell them to your mother, who decidedly wants only to make you happy. Speak to me freely, openly. It is arranged that I am to fetch you on the eleventh of this month, and escort you to Versailles, where Madame de Lamotte will be waiting to receive you with the utmost tenderness. Adieu, dear boy, write to me. Your father knows nothing as yet. His consent will be asked after your decision. The answer to this letter did not have to be waited for. It was such as Derue expected. The lad accepted joyfully. The answer was, for the murderer, an arranged plea of defense, a proof which, in a given case, might link the present with the past. On the morning of February 11th, Shrove Tuesday, he went to fetch the young de Lamotte from his school, telling the master that he was desired by the youth's mother con to conduct him to Versailles. But instead, he took him to his own house, saying that he had a letter from Madame de Lamotte asking them not to come till the next day. So they started on Ash Wednesday, Edouard having breakfasted on chocolate. Arrived at Versailles, they stopped at the Fleur de Lis Inn, but there the sickness which the boy had complained of during the journey became very serious, and the innkeeper, having young children, and, and believing that he recognized symptoms of smallpox, which just then was ravaging Versailles, refused to receive them, saying he had no vacant room. This might have disconcerted anyone but Derue, but his audacity, activity, and resource seemed to increase with each fresh obstacle. Leaving Edouard in a room on the ground floor which had no communication with the rest of the inn, he went at once to look for lodgings, and hastily explored the town. After a fruitless search, he found at last, at the junction of the Rue Saint-Honore, with that of the Orangerie, a cooper named Martin, who had a furnished room to spare. This he hired at thirty sous per day for himself and his nephew, who had been taken suddenly ill, under the name of Bouport. To avoid being questioned later, he informed the cooper in a few words that he was a doctor, that he had come to Versailles in order to place his nephew in one of the offices of the town, that in a few days the latter's mother would arrive to join him in seeing and making application to influential persons about the court to whom he had letters of introduction. As soon as he had delivered this fable with all the appearance of truth with which he knew so well how to disguise his falsehoods, he went back to the young de Lamotte, who was already so exhausted that he was hardly able to drag himself as far as the cooper's house. He fainted on arrival, and was carried into the hired room, where Derue begged to be left alone with him, and only asked for certain beverages which he told the people how to prepare. End of section 7